The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in the fifth chapter and the last three verses, verses 45, 46, and 47 in the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writing, how shall ye believe my word? In those most solemn words, our blessed Lord and Saviour brings to a close this series of extraordinary and remarkable things that he has been saying to these Jews whom he met when he was up at Jerusalem and who were offended with him because he had healed the men on the Sabbath day. This mighty discourse begins at the 17th verse and goes right on like this unto the end of the chapter. And those who attend here with any kind of regularity will know that we have been considering this wonderful and amazing chapter most Sunday evenings since the second Sunday evening last January. And we have done so, of course, because of the richness of the teaching that is found here. But here our Lord brings this mighty discourse to an end. And he does so, as we see from the words that I've just read to you, in a most solemn and alarming manner. He leaves them with a word of warning. Now there was nothing else that he could do. There was nothing else to say. He had gone out of his way in order to make the truth plain and clear to them. He has told them specifically that he is speaking to them at all in order that they might be saved. He is concerned about them. He is anxious that they should be reconciled to God and that their sins should be forgiven. And that is why, in spite of their charging him with blasphemy, in spite of their charging him with being a lawbreaker, he still persists in speaking to them. And he has put the truth very plainly. He has made explicit statements with regard to himself and who he is. He hasn't hesitated to claim that he's equal with God the Father, and that the Father has given him the power to give life and even the power of judgment. Nothing could be plainer. He has said to them in those wonderful words, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my words and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is already passed from death unto life. He's offering life to them. And yet they persist in refusing him. 
And then in order to help them, he showed them how utterly wrong they are. They, as Jews especially, were familiar with the scriptures. And as I've kept on reminding you, he produces his wonderful evidence. The evidence, the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of miracles, the testimony of God's own voice heard from heaven, the testimony of all the Old Testament scriptures. There it is. All pointing to him, stating who he is and why he has come. And still they persist in their unbelief. And here he is at the very end, as we've been seeing, been analyzing their position to them. As if to say, now can't I show you your position? You don't want to come unto me. You will not come unto me that you might have life. And you won't because of the state of your hearts. You talk about God, but you haven't got the love of God in your hearts. You think that I'm anxious that you should believe in me because I want you to honor me. I don't want your honor. I receive not honor from men. But you know, he said, your trouble is that you live to be honored by one another. And that's why you don't believe in me. How can you believe which receive honor one of another? And seek not the honor that cometh from God only. Oh, never had the people a greater opportunity of seeing and receiving the truth than these people. Here is the very Son of God putting it to them in different forms and ways, pleading with them, appealing to them, and on and on he goes, but still they stand back, refusing him in their unbelief. So now I say there's nothing left for him to do but to warn them. It is something that he did repeatedly in his ministry. Now I know that people don't like words of warning. There is some natural dislike in the human heart of words of warning. And yet it's very foolish, isn't it? People say, oh, tell us about the love of God, but don't warn us, don't threaten us. But my dear friend, if you don't listen to the positive statements, the love of God is so great that he would warn you in order that you might see your position. Warning is ever a manifestation of love. I've often used the illustration in this pulpit. You don't blame a doctor who brings pressure to bear upon you to have an operation if he knows that that operation alone can save your life. You wouldn't resent it. You wouldn't regard him as an unkind or a cruel person. You'd be grateful to him. He sees the position. You don't. He's told you that he advises an operation, but still you don't see it. You say, oh, it's unnecessary. He's an alarmist. Well, then he begins to bring pressure to bear. He warns you. He says, no, if you don't, this is what's going to happen to you. We don't like to hear things like that, and yet we know that he's doing it for our good. Well, now it's exactly the same with the gospel. And when our Lord warns these people, I argue that it is still a manifestation of his loving concern about them. He now, I say, having put it positively, puts it negatively. If you don't believe, he says, well, that and that alone awaits you. And so he puts it quite plainly to them. What he really says is this, isn't it? 
that there is nothing that awaits those who finally do not believe in him but condemnation, accusation. Think not that I will accuse you, but there is an accu- there is one that accuseth you. Accusation and condemnation. He shows them the inevitability of this. And he at the same time shows them the way in which this accusation and condemnation will be brought to pass. And as I say, his only reason for doing this is that he would have them see the perilous position in which they are. They didn't realize that. Our Lord is trying to get these people to see that if they don't believe in him, they are refusing and rejecting the last hope of salvation. And of course what he did for them is equally true of us and in our case. And the business of preaching, it seems to me, is to do exactly the same thing. There are two sides to preaching. There is the presentation of the truth. There is the offer of the gospel of salvation. But you read your Bible from beginning to end, and you will find that it is always accompanied by an indication of what happens if the offer is refused. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now there it is. It's wonderful, isn't it? Yes, but remember it goes on to say this. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Well, now, that's what our Lord is doing. He's given them the positive truth. He says, do you realize where you are and what your position is if you persist in that unbelief and in that refusal? Here it is for you. And it is my solemn duty to do the same thing with you this evening. We've worked our way through this great chapter in which the Lord makes this claim for himself and tells us so plainly why he's come into the world. He's offered us life. Am I speaking to somebody still who doesn't believe in him? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you realize the terrible position of not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you realize the urgent importance of knowing for certain whether you believe in him or not? That's the subject with which our Lord deals. And here I say we are shown that position in a most amazing manner. I see in these verses we're looking at this evening a perfect summary or epitome of the whole message of the Bible. There are certain things, it seems to me, our Lord teaches here, which we have got to realize as we value our immortal soul. Now, what are they? Well, let me put them to you. The first is this. 
If we are at all concerned about ourselves and our lives and the state of our souls and about death and about eternity, if we are in this building at this moment, as I am, I think, entitled to assume we are, because we are concerned about these things, why have you done this tonight, which is such an unusual thing in the modern world? The vast majority of people are not doing what you are doing at this moment. They're doing everything but this. They regard you perhaps as a fool for having still come to a place of worship. They're listening to the wireless. They're dancing. They're drinking. They're gambling. Well, now, you are here because, well, you obviously are concerned about these matters. You may be disturbed by the state of the world. You're beginning to ask, well, why are things going like this? We've been told so long that when man becomes educated, he'll solve his problems. But here is the world full of problems. What is this? Or you may be conscious of some failure in your own life. Or somebody dear to you has suddenly died. Something's happened and you've thought about life. And you say, well now, what is all this? What is the truth about all these matters? Very well. If that is your position, I can tell you here in the words of our blessed Lord and Savior what you've got to do. There are just three main things that we have to do. And here's the first. We must start by realizing and accepting the supreme authority of this book which we call the Bible. Now, I say that if you want to be helped, if you want to know this gospel, if you want to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, here's a starting point. You must believe and accept the authority of this book. And when I say this book, I mean the Old Testament as well as the New. Now, here is my reason for saying that this is how our Lord puts it. He said, had you believed Moses, there, if you like, is the whole of your Old Testament. He said, you would have believed me, or still more specifically in verse 47. If ye believe not his writing, how shall he believe my word? His writings, Old Testament. My words, New Testament. So between them, we have the whole of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New. Now, this is something that is absolutely basic and fundamental. You notice that our Lord, in reasoning with these Jews, mentions nothing else. His writings, my words. Not a word about Plato and what he thought. Not a word about Socrates. Doesn't mention Aristotle. Not a single word. Why not? You see how basic this is? How fundamental? Here is the Son of God speaking and he's talking about authority. And he says, this and this alone is the authority. Your Old Testament scriptures, what I'm saying to you. Not a word about the wisdom of China. And it was available at that time, let me remind you. Not a word about the wisdom of Egypt. That was also known and available. Not a word about the wisdom of Assyria. No, no. He mentions nothing but the Old Testament, his own word. I cannot emphasize this principle too much. Our Lord is here teaching that there is no authoritative statement on these matters apart from this. 
We've got it in the words of the Apostle Paul, haven't we? And they explain why our Lord doesn't refer to the Greek philosophers. You know, don't you, that Plato and Socrates and Aristotle had lived before Christ ever came into this world. They'd given, they'd poured out their magnificent teaching. They'd elaborated their philosophical schemes. Doesn't say a word about it. Why? Well, that's not authoritative. That's nothing but human speculation. The Apostle Paul has told us the last word about that. He said, the world by wisdom knew not God. Now, Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle were trying to find God. They were great men. They were great thinkers. Don't misunderstand me. My case is not that they were not great men or that they were not great thinkers. My case is this, that great as they were, they were in the dark because they couldn't find God. Because God is eternal and everlasting and they are only men and sinful men. I'm not telling you not to read their works, but I'm telling you this, that when you've read them, you'll know nothing more about God than you did at the beginning, because they didn't know. He doesn't mention them. Moses, my words, the Bible and the Bible only. In other words, I say that if you're really serious about this question, this quest for a knowledge of God, and for salvation and peace, you've got to come to this book. I know nothing apart from what this book tells me. I can read and I have read the philosophies and the speculations of others, but they simply ask questions they don't know. They don't know God. They don't know what happens beyond death. They believed in some shadowy Elysium. They know nothing about it. They write about the river Styx, and there you are in the shadows, and in the gloom of it all, I want knowledge, and I can't find it there. It's here and here alone I find it. It is only as we come as little children and submit to this book and its authority that we find the light. And you find it, as our Lord says, here in the Old Testament as well as in the New. He said, if you'd believed his writings, you'd believe my words. Why, they're the same. He wrote of me. He said that I was coming, I've come. He said, I do certain things I've done. Here I am. The two things are one. Oh, my dear friend, if you haven't ever met this argument before, listen to it this evening. Have you ever considered the unity of this book? Have you ever stood in amazement before this fact? that the Old Testament and the New really have the same message. He was writing about me, says our Lord, about Moses. Back you'll find him in the book of Genesis. We worked through this in detail when we were doing that 39th verse. So I'm not going into the details again tonight. I'm simply asking you to look at the unity of the book. The old looks forward to him, the new looks back upon him. He's there in the center. One message. God, man's salvation. Have you seen it? I assert to you again, my friend, that as long as you trust your own little mind and reason and your own speculation and your own philosophies, you'll remain exactly as you are now. You'll remain in the dark. Because God can never be found by men. Can a man by searching find out God? Well, try it and you'll find he can't. Even these mightiest philosophers couldn't. Well, we come to this, I say, why? Well, because... This is inspired by God. 
This is God's book. Where do you find that, says someone? I'll tell you where I find it. Our Lord says here, he wrote of me. Moses wrote of him. When did Moses live? 1,400 years before Christ was born. How could he possibly have written about Christ? How could he have known anything about Christ? There's only one explanation. It was revealed to him by God through the Holy Spirit. That's the claim of the Old Testament. That is what our Lord says about the Old Testament. It isn't I who who is saying this. Our Lord says it. He wrote of me. God gave him the revelation. He gave him the preview. He gave him words. He told him to write. Now our Lord everywhere says that. He believed the Old Testament as the inspired word of God. The prophets make the same claim. They said, the burden of the Lord, the message of the Lord came to me. These men don't come before us and say, now look here, I'm a man who studied, I've looked into this matter, and as a result of my research, this is what I think. Not at all. A man like Amos says, I was a man keeping a herd, but a herdsman. And I wasn't interested, I didn't know about these things, but God laid his hand upon me and gave me a message. They all say the same thing. This is the inspired word of God. That's why I ask you to come to it and believe its authority. That's why I ask you to come to it and say, well, philosophy can't help me. What's this? See its unity. See the inspiration. See its claim. There's only one explanation of it. It must be inspired. How could these men have foretold about Bethlehem and about his born of being born of a virgin and about his riding into Jerusalem in the foal of an ass and the thousand and one other details? How do you explain it? There's only one explanation. It's inspiration. It's the Spirit of God revealing, the Spirit of God moving the writers, as Peter puts it, and giving him the message and the words in which to convey it. It's inspired of God. Therefore, my dear friend, if you are concerned about your soul and about your eternal destiny, I say, come to this. Come on your knees to it. Don't pit your little puny mind against it. Your mind is much smaller than that of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. Very well, then, I say, come as a little child. As Christ said, except he be converted and become as little children, he shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. Here it is. He says to himself, Moses, my word, listen, listen for your life. And if you want some more practical reasons for submitting to it and its authority, listen to this. Everything you need and everything you can ever desire, you will find here. I don't hesitate to asseverate that. Do you want light? Light upon the universe, light on creation, light on man, light on the state of the world tonight. Light on life, light on death, light on eternity, light on God. It's here. You want light on how to live in a decent way in this world? You'll find it here. You want light on how to lose the fear of death and the grave? 
you'll get it here. You want light on her to be joyous and happy and be filled with the spirit of peace. You get it here. It's offered here. He offers life. Life which is life indeed. Life which is life abundant. Come to this book. It will supply and satisfy your every need. Moses and my word. But I say to you, come to it for this reason. That this book, as our Lord tells these Jews on this occasion, leaves us without a single excuse. That's the terrifying thing about it. My dear friends, that's the terrifying thing about preaching. That I know that even my feeble words will rise up in the judgment against those who have heard them but haven't believed them. Our Lord says it here. He says, look here, there is one that accuses you, even Moses in whom you trust. The very words you read Sunday by Sunday will rise against you in the judgment and condemn you. Now our Lord himself said that about his own words. You'll find it at the end of the twelfth chapter of this gospel according to St. John, where he makes the thing perfectly plain in these words. He says, if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that, that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken the same shall judge him in the last day. So you see, it's perfectly plain. He says the words of Moses and his words will rise against men in the judgment and ask them why they didn't believe them. If I had not come and spoken unto them, said our Lord later on, then had they not had sin. But now have they no cloak for their sin. It's a terrifying thought, this. But because this book has got everything that we need, has got an answer to all our questions, and can supply our every need, this book becomes our condemnation if we don't believe it. It will leave us speechless. And without a single answer on the day of judgment, so I beseech you, as you value your immortal soul, come to this book, submit to it and its authority. You failed outside, you failed without it. Well, come to this and humble yourself before it. Read it as a little child. Let it speak to you. That's the first principle. The second principle which our Lord emphasizes is this one. The importance of being right and clear about the message of the book. You notice how he puts it to these Jews. He says, I will not uh, accuse you uh, to the Father, but there is one that will accuse you, even Moses, in whom you trust. What does he mean? He means this. 
These Jews who were refusing to believe in him were great readers of the Old Testament and were great believers in the Old Testament. It was their proud boast that they were the only nation in the world that had the oracles of God. Moses, they say, Moses belongs to us and the fathers and the prophets. Look at those Gentiles. They don't have Moses. We've got the scriptures, the living oracles of God, and they trusted in them. And yet you see what our Lord is telling them is this. That though they thought such a lot of the scriptures, they didn't believe them. He said, had you believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote to me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my word? There is nothing that I know of that is quite as alarming as this. Here were these Jews bursting of the scriptures and yet misunderstanding them. Reading them every Sunday, listening to the interpretations, and yet they'd so misinterpreted them that they completely missed the message. And men and women are still doing the same thing. With an open Bible. Christianity is being entirely misunderstood by large numbers of people today. I know of nothing more terrifying than that. People in the name of Christ are saying things, but it's not the gospel. The very oracles of God open before us can mean nothing. We can misinterpret them. The Jews were doing it. I say men and women are still doing it. They say this gospel is nothing but some kind of political, social matter. I ought to be preaching tonight on that racial problem in South Africa. Or I ought to be preaching about the, the atomic bomb. That's Christianity, apparently. It's just one great message, and that's the kind of message it is. And they denounce the preaching of the blood of Christ and his atoning sacrifice and things like that. With the Bible open before them. So I don't apologize for putting a simple and a blunt question to you at this moment. What in your opinion is Christianity? What in your opinion is a Christian? What makes a man a Christian? Is it that he just holds certain social views? Or that he lives a certain moral kind of life? Or that he makes some great sacrifice for humanity. Is that the thing that makes a man a Christian? With the Bible open before you, I ask you, what is the message of the book? I press the question upon you because our Lord himself taught that men and women with the book open before them could completely misunderstand it. Very well then, that brings me to my third and my last heading, which is this. What is the message of the book? The Old Testament, the New Testament, Moses, Jesus Christ. What is it? He wrote of me. What does he say? What is the message of the Old Testament right through? What's the message of the New Testament from beginning to end?
Well, let me remind you of the essence of the message as our Lord himself summarizes it here in these three verses. The first great message of the Bible is the message about judgment. Think not that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that shall accuse you. Even Moses, what's he talking about? Well, he's introducing here, I say, this tremendous teaching of the Bible concerning judgment. What does it mean? Well, let me repeat it to you as quietly and as solemnly as I can. It means that Man is a moral and a responsible being. He has been made in the image of God, and he is accountable to God. Do you think of yourself like that? Do you say to yourself every day of your life, I'm a moral, responsible being? I am accountable to God. It's the teaching of the Bible from beginning to end. Our conscience alone teaches us this. It tells us, it condemns us, and condemns action. The conscience is speaking that, but this book does so much more clearly. God's law teaches that Moses, Ten Commandments, Moral Law, what is it? Well, it's a revelation of God, and God in the character of judge. But you even find it in the history. You remember what happened in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve were driven out. And the cherubim and the flaming sword were placed at the east gate of the garden, prohibiting a return. What is it? Judgment. The ground has been cursed. Man earns his bread by the sweat of his brow. What is it? Judgment. The flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the captivity into Assyria and the captivity of Babylon, all this is but God indicating that he's a judge and that man is morally responsible, even in history. What else? Well, the second thing is this, that death is not the end. That man is not a mere animal. That man goes on living beyond death. Read your Old Testament, read your New Testament, listen to the words of Christ. And that is what he tells you. Dust thou art to dust returnest was not spoken of the soul. Death is not the end, my friend. Had you realized that, that's the message of this book. Men and women are living tonight on the assumption that death is the end. Let's have a good time, they say. Let's do what I feel like doing. Don't listen to this morality. Don't listen to religion. Get rid of this nonsense about God. Have a good time. Do what you want to do. And when you die, that's the end. Men and women but realize that death is not the end, they wouldn't live as they do. 
It is in their ignorance and blindness on that very skull that they do live as they do. Why do they do it? They haven't read this book. They haven't learned its message that death is not the end. What then? Well, the day of judgment. I'm not going to accuse you, he says. There is someone. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about a day of judgment. It is in the Bible from the beginning to the end. Every one of us shall have to stand before God. It is appointed unto all men once to die. And after death, the judgment. This book tells us that every one of us will have to stand that day before God and give an account of the deeds done in the body. Of how we've lived in this world and what we've done with our souls and what we've done to God's image upon us. Every one of us will have to do it. The judgment, the accusation, the terms are there. There'll be an accuser. There'll be a public prosecutor. And we are told exactly the evidence he'll produce. There are books and records in which our every action is recorded. I'm not saying this. It's the Bible that says it. This thing that Christ asks you to believe, it's all in the Old Testament. It's there in the New Testament. These are the terms. And finally, the judgment that will be pronounced at that great day will be a final judgment. There'll be no possibility of an appeal. There'll be no second chance. There's not a word about that in the whole of the Bible. Our Lord himself said it in the parable of Dives and Lazarus. A great gulf is fixed. And there's no passage from heaven to hell or from hell to heaven. It is a final judgment. Irrevocable. And everlasting. Listen to him saying it. I will not accuse you. But there is one that shall accuse you. Moses, whom you've been reading and whom you trust. Listen to him. What else do you read of in the Bible? Well, the next thing is this. Sin and condemnation. Here is men, a responsible being. Going on through life to death and to stand before God at the last day. What are his chances? What are his prospects? Well, the Bible tells us that a great calamity has happened in the history and the story of mankind. It calls it the fall of men. That men sinned and rebelled against God and thus has brought himself under condemnation and under the wrath of God. Now people in their folly say they don't like that. And because they don't like it, they don't believe it. They say, I believe in a positive gospel of salvation. But my dear friend, let me ask you a question. What do you need to be saved from? Why is salvation necessary? 
Why did God tell Adam and Eve at the beginning about the seed of the woman that should bruise the serpent's head? Why in Moses and his writings is there all this about the lamb and the sacrifice and the offering? What's its meaning? Why salvation? It's because man is condemned and condemned in sin. Bible's message is that we have all sinned and have come short of the glory of God. That we are all the children of wrath. That every one of us is guilty in the sight of this holy God. It goes further. It tells us that not one of us can save ourselves. These Jews thought that they could save themselves. That was how they had misinterpreted the writings of Moses. They said we've got the law, and the fact that we've got the law means that we must be special favorites of God. And then they thought, ah, if we keep the law, and they interpreted that in their own way, they said we'll satisfy God. Saul of Tarsus thought, that he was pleasing God and saving himself by living the law. He then saw that not only had he not done it, that no one else had done it. And that no one else can ever do it. And so he came to write this. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Have you read Moses? Have you read the condemnation? It is this, that every one of us sinned in Adam. That every one of us has sinned for himself. And therefore we are under the wrath of God and are guilty in his holy sight. And though we may decide tonight to go out and enter a monastery, and fast and sweat and pray and do good, we can never save ourselves. We can never satisfy. The law of Moses condemns us. We are all lost. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. That is the accusation of Moses. Thank God I don't stop there. But this is the message of the Bible. God the judge. Man in sin and condemnation. Moses says it. Christ says it. Ah, but there's something else. The message about the Savior and about the salvation. Moses, he says, wrote of me. Then he says, my word. What is he talking about? Well, what he's saying is this. He is calling their attention to his own person. Look at me, he says. You who believe in Moses and who know him so well, look at me. Can't you see he wrote of me? Have you read about the Paschal Lamb? Look at me. Listen to the testimony of John. 
Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the whole world. Have you read of the Lamb slain in the morning, slain at night, every day in the temple and the tabernacle? Look at me. Moses wrote of me. Do you remember how he said at the end of his life, Another prophet shall God raise up unto you, like unto me. Look at me, he says. I am that prophet, the prophet that you've been expecting. What he's saying is this, that he's the center of the book, the center of of the universe, the center of history. The whole of the Bible is about Jesus Christ. He is the seed of the woman. He is the Shiloh that was promised. He is the scepter that shall come to Jacob. He is the star of which we read. He is the type, the antitype, to which all the types together promise and to which they point. He is the one that the prophets sang about and spoke about. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He is the babe that's going to be born in Bethlehem. It's all about him. He wrote of me. Look at him. Behold him. Listen to him as he asks these Jews. To look at him. He's the son of God. He has come from heaven. He's the center of history. Everything converges on him. He's the new man. He's the second Adam. He is God's way of deliverance and of salvation. The Bible, this book I'm asking you to believe and to submit to, follow it and it will bring you to him. He wrote of me. But it not only tells us who he is, it tells us Why he came into this world? Why did the Son of God come into the world and be born as that babe in Bethlehem? Why has he done it all? Well, he tells us here not to condemn. There's no need for him to condemn. Moses does the condemnation. Before Christ ever came, the whole world was condemned. He came because it was condemned. The Son of Men, he said, is come to seek and to save that which is lost. They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What was it that led the Son to leave the eternal bosom and to humble himself and to be born miraculously of a virgin? Why did he do it? I say it's because the whole world is damned and lost and condemned under the wrath of God. He hasn't come to condemn. Moses condemns. The law of God condemns us. No, no, he hasn't come to condemn. He has come to save. And he came because he alone could save. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. There was no other that could walk through this sinful world and escape its defilement 
and conquer Satan and hell itself. He did. He's God as well as men. He's come to deliver. Look at him. He's here to save, not to accuse. I say he came to save because none other could. But he can, and he did. And how did he do it? Oh, his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead unto sin should live unto righteousness. He didn't save by preaching the Sermon on the Mount alone, and no man saves himself by trying to practice the Christian ethic. It is Christ who saves, and he alone, and he saves by bearing our sins in his own body on the tree. He came to die. He came to taste death for every man. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. It's the only way to save, and he took it. He went. He has resisted even unto blood. That's what he's telling these men. I haven't come to accuse you. I've come to save you. I've come to save you from the accusation, the accusation of Moses and his law. And he came and he did it. He bore the punishment of our sins there on Calvary's cross. The wrath of God was poured out upon him. And because of that, God gives me forgiveness as a free gift. With nothing in me, everything in Christ. I am vile, I am sinful, I am ungodly. I have nothing to say for myself. It doesn't matter. It's all in him. And he gives it me as the free gift of his love. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth as a propitiation through faith in his blood. There it is. It's in him and in him alone. And that is what he was offering those Jews. And that is what he is offering you at this minute. Free forgiveness. Reconciliation unto God. A new life. A new principle within you. To be made a child of God. And blessings more than you can ever understand. He will so bless you that you will say with Charles Wesley. Just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness, vile and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in thee I find. Plenteous grace in thee is found. Grace to cover all my sin. Let the healing streams abound. Make me, keep me pure within.
Thou of life the fountain art. Freely let me take of thee. Spring thou up within my heart. Rise to all eternity. That's why he's come. To do that. The judgment is coming. And there will be an accuser. Who will be that accuser? Listen to Paul answering the question. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who's going to charge us, he asks, at that dread day of judgment? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? Is it Christ? No, no, says Paul, it is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. He won't accuse us. He's come to save. Moses and the law are the accusers. Christ will never accuse you. He it is who came and died for us and rose again. My dear friend, have you pictured yourself beyond this life, beyond death? Do you know that you are going on to that judgment? You are. We all are. But the Son of God has come from heaven to save you. You need not go to wrath and perdition. You can enter into the joy of your Lord and spend your eternity there. But there's only one way for me. And that is to go to him, acknowledging and confessing your sin and shame and failure. Believing that he is the eternal son of God. And that he came into this world. To bear the punishment of your sins. And thereby silence and answer. The accusation of the law of God. He that believeth is not condemned. Believe. And be ye saved and safe for all eternity. Amen.